It's well known that the majority of bike brands manufacture their framing and other components in Asia, most notably in Taiwan and China. But beyond this, most consumers know very little about this major part of the worldwide bike market. Is this simply by accident or by design? In this episode, we take a closer look at exactly what goes on when bike companies source product from Asia, what are the challenges involved, and should we collectively be concerned about the environmental and ethical questions this raises? I'm joined by two heads of very different bike companies, one large, one small, but both making extensive use of Asian suppliers to manufacturing carbon and aluminium. So I'd like to welcome today's guests. We've got Andrew Herrick, who's the CEO of Intense Bikes and previously was co-founder and CEO of uh, Crank Brothers. And Neil Webb, uh, former bike industry journalist and turned founder and managing director of Bowman Cycles in the UK. So welcome, guys. Thank you. So I guess, you know, today we're talking about um, the Asian manufacturing side of uh, of the bike business. Maybe I wanted to start with you, Andrew, because you've probably been working with Asian suppliers a little bit longer than neil has have things changed a lot in the time that you know obviously with 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 intense and then crank brothers prior to that during that time you've been working with asian manufacturing partners have you have you seen the landscape change a lot well i think you know everything in the bike industry and maybe all i can only speak for the bike industry but you know things things are evolving in so many ways and um i think that the initial the, the biggest change that I can see is that from 15 years ago, um, Asian manufacturing was really the domain of the very large companies. And I was at, prior to Crank Brothers, I was at Schwinn, Schwinn GT, and that's when I first was uh, spending some time over there. And, and that was normal, you know, for the larger companies to be there. But for the smaller companies, especially in the mountain bike industry, if those who've been around as long as I have will remember that that prior to that was kind of the age of the CNC machines. And so if you were going to make uh, a seat post or something like that, you had the brands from the UK. It's really cool brands like USE making stuff in the UK. You had Thompson and other people making stuff in the U.S., and um, now even the small guys can get access to Asian manufacturing. And, and that's created a lot of really cool innovation because you're able to bring some products to market at a, a very kind of sophisticated manufacturing level and actually compete against the larger brands like Shimano and et cetera. So Truvative came out of that. Uh, Avid Brakes are just to name two and Crank Brothers with pedals. Um, yeah. But what, do you think, was that something that the suppliers in Asia consciously did or they just evolved over time so that they were able to, to work with smaller companies at, a, at a, maybe a higher technology level than they had before? I think that their capabilities, I think, in, in due course, in the normal course, just increased so dramatically, uh, improved, I guess is probably the better word, so dramatically. Although I'm not you know, I, I'm speculating because, you know, even though I've been to Taiwan, I think a hundred times now and counting, um, I wasn't there before. So, um, but, but clearly, um, it started, I think with simple products like pumps and tools, uh, which, you know, all pumps were being made by everybody from Blackburn to surface to, uh, whoever else. And then, and then the product started becoming more sophisticated with investment casting and um, stamping and all, all of those things started to be just more accessible. I, I just think that the, the manufacturers started to really up their game dramatically starting about 15 years ago. And, and Avid, again, I think was one of the early guys where they could go in and disrupt Shimano. 
when I was at Schwinn GT, we bought a lot of Avid brakes and they were four guys in, in uh, Denver, Colorado or Boulder, Colorado, a very small company and they were able to compete. And uh, that, that's been good for the market. I think, I think the other side of, of that thing, obviously my background is very different um, and I'm the small guy coming in, but the, the one, the, the reason I think the only reason I can, I can do what I can do given the amount of capital and, and time and everything that one person actually can generate is technology. Um, it, I can, I can have meetings with people in Taiwan without having to fly there six times a year. I can, um, you know, the, the amount of, um, computer programs where I can look at a 3d CAD drawing of a frame on a laptop that isn't, you know, a, a supercomputer that has to sit in its own room. Yeah. Well, from the technology side of side of things, you, you there's as much to do with the communication side of things that has allowed the small people to compete and be involved in Asian manufacturer as as much as um, Asian manufacturers themselves improving their technology and constantly constantly investing in it to to improve. Yeah, and Neil, I, I can I, God, I'm so glad you brought that up. You're 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 exactly right. And, and you just, you just made me remember something that I hadn't thought of in a long time, which was uh, here, you, here we are, I'm sitting in California, uh, <laughs> California, Alex is in, you're in Northern California right now. I, I'm in Southern Oregon now. <laughs> Southern Oregon now yeah. and, and it was in the UK. And, uh, this is pretty normal for us to be having this conversation, but I remember the first Skype video Skype call we did with our vendors in Taiwan from Laguna beach, California and our little place where we were starting crank brothers. And it was like watching the moon landing, you know, it was like watching it. You know, we, I remember seeing this kind of foggy screen and uh, on the other end were these four Asian colleagues of ours that we work with. And, um, we just sat there just in amazement that we were looking at each other and we were hold, we were putting pedals up to the, you know, the computer. So we were pointing to the spring or the spindle and say, Hey, can you guys work on this area? And this is completely not even normal right now. I mean, it's just, it's like uh, at four o'clock, everybody's Skype goes on and we, and everybody speaks with Asia here in California. Yeah. Michael, we're, we're starting to sound old, aren't we? <laughs> That's why I said, it's like watching the moon landing. I mean, it was, it was like watching some slow motion footage from the sixties of uh, Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. Yeah. So Neil, can you tell us a bit about when you started Bowman, did you investigate other manufacturing options before you eventually arrived on, on manufacturing frames in Taiwan? I'm curious whether you looked at any, any options in Europe, for example. I looked, I, I looked in various places. I looked at, sort of at home. So here in the UK, mm-hmm. I looked at what was potentially available. I looked at um, manufacturing out of Italy. Um, I looked a little bit into potential ex, um, ex communist block. Was there anything there sort of kind of historic legacy, um, manufacturing that could be changed or altered or, or kind of re reinvigorated. And the, the fundamental flaw or fundamental flaw in the availability of anything, the the sort of thing that I wanted to get, nobody makes tubing. There's lots of people that can weld. There's lots of people that have the jigs. There's lots of people that have the infrastructure for painting um, and finishing. But the actual tubing itself, you are so limited as to what's available if you're not using Asian manufacturing because nobody nobody has put any investment into 
um, the tooling for tube shaping, for be that drawing, extrusion, stamp tooling, hydroforming. There just, there just is no, there's no choice. Right. So in, in, I guess in Europe, for example, I mean, if you compare uh, Bowman to a brand like Mason, I mean, he's, he's, he's having his aluminium frames produced in Italy using, using deader tubing, right? So, so you're sort of limited to what you can get off the peg from Columbus or deader or other aluminium tubing suppliers, right? Yeah, I, I, I looked at, at data and what's available from data now is, is very, very similar to what was available from data 10, almost 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't really changed their tubing a great deal. Um, there's certainly very, very minimal um, tubing profile options available. There's incredibly limited butt length options available. And that's just kind of once you get into main parts, as soon as you start thinking about, do I want a 1.5 or a 1 and 3 eighths tapered head tube? Do I want to potentially have a seat tube that um, tapers down from 34.9 at the BB to 27.2 for a narrower post? You have no options. Yeah. Um, And that's just purely in the main tubing profiles. Once you start getting into what are my options for through axle dropouts for modular dropout systems you you have none i i'm i'm i guess i'm curious for both of you guys um you know you've obviously built up really good relationships and you're used to getting things done over there now i, I imagine lots of people head over to asia you know trying to, to to set up sourcing for for bike related goods and and there's a lot of common mistakes that people make due to i don't know cultural differences or just the way that the business is done over there have you guys got any any good examples of, of major sort of faux pas that you made early on um, i i don't know whether it's a major faux pas as in a specific mistake but i remember sitting in a bar with a few people from a few different companies and someone explaining something to me and it was a real complete and utter aha moment. And so many things that had gone wrong made utter sense. And it was, it's a cultural thing. It's a language thing. In Mandarin, there's no tense. There is no future. There is no past. There just is. It's not like you always talk in the present tense because there is no past tense or future tense or anything. So everything, and if you, if you consider how you, how you think and your thought processes as a Westerner, you think if A, then we'll do this. If B, then we'll do that. If C, then we'll do that. If you don't have that in your language, you've never had that thought process. So you can't give someone a simple bullet point list and say, I want to, you know, let's try three different ways of do a frame drawn with three different top tubes. We'll see what does what. And if this happens, then we'll try this. If this happens, then we'll try that because it just doesn't work because they've never had to think that it's, it's not like they've never had to think in that way, but the language doesn't allow that process to even enter into consciousness in some ways. And just the realization that there was no, you know, there was no thing. They can see the past because it's happened and they can react to the past, but they don't describe it in that way. But you can, because there is no tense within the language, you, you, you cannot, it's not that you can't plan, but you can't discuss plans and options in, in that way unless 
they have an incredibly good grasp of English. And when you suddenly realise that, it changes completely how you deal with them and a certain type of problem completely disappears from your life. Right. <laughs> and, and that realisation was, it just, it was a complete game changer for the way I had to deal with, with Taiwan. What, what about your experience, Andrew? <laughs> I'm, I'm, once again, Neil, Neil reminds me of so many things. I, uh, I think I could start with uh, about five years ago, I was walking through the Orange County Airport on my way somewhere and uh, I, I noticed a very small little, a miniature Harvard Business School. Uh, they have a little series of mini books that you can read on airplanes. And one of them is just called On Doing Business in China. And it's little, little teeny miniature book, probably 50 pages in it. And I was reading it on the airplane and I was laughing out loud. And, and uh, someone was sitting next to me and they looked over and they saw it was a Harvard Business Review book. And they said to me, but I didn't realize Harvard Business uh, wrote comedies. <laughs> and I said, I said, no, I'm laughing at myself. Yeah. And the, the, I would encourage anybody who's interested in this topic and who's listening to your podcast or, and who, uh, it, it, to, to just go pick it up somewhere. You could probably get it um, quickly on Amazon somewhere I imagine, but uh, it's just called on doing business in China. And it, it talks about the manifestations of all the things that, that uh, Neil alluded to and the fact that there's just simple cultural, major cultural divides that are very difficult to fully grasp. And, um, and it's it, back to the language. The second thing is back to the language to comment on what Neil said about language. We had an American, uh, it's still a good friend of mine that worked with us at Crank Brothers who has an office in Taichung. And he said, look, when you're sitting in a meeting, the, don't, don't think that when you set you, you you try to put emphasis on it, you know, in the English language. He says, if you say, we definitely do not want that, they will smile and say yes to you. But now you just use the word definitely, do, not, and want all in one sentence. He said they didn't get any of that, and so they don't know whether you said you definitely want it or you definitely do or you definitely don't. And and, and the, he said it's. He said, be really careful when you're in meetings and, and what you talk about. And then I have one other anecdote that I think everyone get a great example. So there's a famous story at Haro from a number of years ago where they shipped a container of BMX bikes to Australia. And in Australia, they have a different um, uh, regulations around bikes. They call it, you know, AU build. Uh, they have different widths of handlebars and, you have to put a chain guide on it and all that type of stuff, or you can't even get it into customs. Well, the bikes arrived, and um, the handlebars were too wide. And uh, they had to be something like 48, and they were all uh, 52 or something like that, just for example. So they shipped the entire container back to the vendor in Asia, and they said, they need, you, need to cut four, you need to cut four centimeters off of these bars to meet Australian standard. And they said, okay, we just did that. We reworked all the bikes and they shipped the container back to Australia. The customer opened up the container and they cut four inches off of one side. <laughs> <laughs> they did what they said. And that's Neil's point. And that's exactly the point is that they, <laughs> they don't think of the future of the past. And it's not that they're, they're in any way unintelligent, by the way, they're extremely intelligent and they're wonderful people. But that's just a cultural thing where you had to be a little bit more specific than just saying, hey, cut off the four centimeters or four inches or whatever the number was. 
And uh, that story is a legendary product development story around the industry where people say, be careful because you remember what happened to Haro a few years ago. <laughs> That's a good one. So I guess given all of the, you know, there's, there's obvious cultural differences, there's challenges with, you know, with, with um, uh, time zones and locations and all these sorts of things. How, how do you manage that? I mean, I guess we've got, we've got two good examples here, a very small company and a slightly larger company. Do you, um, Andrew, do you have staff based over in Asia uh, a lot of the time? Do you, what sort of intermediaries, trading companies do you work with? Can you, can you tell us a bit about that, that landscape that sort of helps Western companies do business over there? Yeah, I think that, uh, that anybody who is, a, let's call it a small company, and I, I you know, don't want to be impolite and throw around numbers, but let's just kind of use a round number and say, like, maybe if you're under 10 million in global revenue, I think you, you, my, my belief is you must work with a trading company. And, um, and I can elaborate on the reasons why, if you'd like, and I think that as you get a little, Please do, yeah, yeah. Well, um, the biggest thing is that you need an advocate for, for some of the examples that both Neil and I have just given the, uh, a trading company represents, uh, 10, 15, sometimes 30 different brands. And, um, when things don't go well with a vendor and you're out there by yourself, you have absolutely no way to communicate with them and no way to have a kind of an intelligent discussion about how to solve a problem, nor are they motivated to, in many ways, kind of, I think, behave in a, in a commercially responsible way. So a trading company's you know, real definition, I'll circle back around in a moment, but this, you know, the real definition is to act as your advocate and behave actually as a kind of an adjunct to your company. They behave exactly as if they're your company. They place purchase orders, they do quality inspections, they arrange for shipments, etc. They, they, they should do quality inspections. Yes. Yeah, they, do, they, they, yeah, they should have. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> in, in nominally, um, they, they, uh, that's what it said. they say they do. And, and some of them do. Actually. Some of them do quite a good job, but not all of them. I think the biggest, and, and unless you have a legal entity inside of Taiwan, um, you cannot take ownership of the goods, so therefore you can't actually place purchase orders uh, to the vendors uh, unless you do it directly. And, and then, then by the time you, you get to inspect the goods, you already own them because they're on a boat. So uh, the trading company can act as an intermediary where they actually take ownership of the goods temporarily, uh, maybe sometimes only for an hour, but long enough to you know, perform proper commerce, let's put it that way. But I found the most value is when you get yourself in trouble. And again, because of all the reasons we just talked about, you absolutely are going to get yourself in trouble over there. And that's when you pick up the phone, you talk to your trading company, you say, I need help. And that's the trading company is always the person who knows what brand of whiskey, the man who runs the painting vendor likes. He knows what type of cigarettes the frame tubing manufacturer likes. And it's it's these small things that your your forks delayed your forks have been delayed in production, so your frame sets aren't ready. They they need to be rushed through. You've missed your slot in the paint factory, or the headsets haven't arrived. And as much as the kind of legal side of things of not being able to purchase something, or not having or or fronting cash flow for various things, or all of the myriad of commercial reasons for using them, the relationships that a good trading company or a good agent or a good, whichever exact detailed part of partner you use, that is, that, that, that's worth, for want of a better phrase, it's the kind of MasterCard thing. It's priceless. You cannot, you cannot buy that. Couldn't agree with you more. You know. 
and then I think, uh, and then, uh, and I think, I think, Neil, you summed it up perfectly and that's exactly right. And, uh, we would run into trouble and I would call the trading company ahead and I'd say, you know, whatever the problem is, I've got a quality problem. We've got a delivery problem. And the, the, again, to, to come, to come full circle, if the vendor says we don't care, vendor can say we don't care to Crane Brothers or to Intense, but the vendor can't say we don't care to a trading company who represents $200 million or $300 million worth of business to them. So the trading company, one of the ones we work with or we've worked with in the past, represents Park Tools and Felt Bicycles and GT Bicycles and, 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 and uh, BMC Bicycles. So that was the same trading company that worked for Crane Brothers. So if the vendor said, oh, we don't care about Crane Brothers, the, the trading company would say, well, do you care about us? Because we're going to take our business, all of those clients, we're going to take them somewhere else unless you've solved this problem. So that, that was a really good, uh, very important uh, piece of leverage for us. Crank Brothers, once we surpass kind of the $10 million mark, we open our own offices over there. We established a branch office, which means we could own the inventory, which means we could finance the inventory through a bank, uh, which means that we could perform our own quality inspections in our own building. And if it didn't pass muster, we could send it back to the vendor, which is probably in some cases only one mile away from our warehouse. And uh, But we still hired as the head of Crank Brothers Taiwan, the former head of the Cannondale Trading Company. So she had 20 years of experience already. So we didn't just send a bunch of Americans over there. I think that's about the worst thing you could possibly do. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I certainly agree with you that it's, it's, it's like any, it's not just business, it's anything in life. Everything revolves around a good relationship and be it a commercial relationship or a personal relationship over there. It, it just, you, you cannot survive without it purely because, some of that is down to the time where people are. Some of that is down to culture. Some of it is language. Some of it is just history. So, yeah, I mean, having somebody on the ground that is your guy, your girl, your person, is it's utterly, utterly invaluable. Um, and anybody who thinks they can go over there and just get the cycle source book or the cycle source book, that's, that's yeah, that's showing my age. Um, Taiwan the, Bicycle Guide, TBG. Yeah, yeah the, the Bible, the big chunky bible if anybody thinks they can just get that guy over there and buy some forks and get them painted and create a brand then they're just they're crazy they have absolutely no comprehension of how things are going to work but yeah lots of people still try and do it don't they (laughs) yeah yeah and um it's 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 good in some ways because it it keeps the uh, mail order houses in non-branded stuff that doesn't compete with your own things yeah, yeah. So I guess I wanted to just switch to sort of, you know, the idea of how companies like yours communicate where the product is actually made. And Neil, uh, you know, when you started Bowman quite recently, you've been extremely open with with where your frames are made. You've you've stressed the, you know, the high quality of the manufacturing in Taiwan. I'm guessing this was not by accident you actually set out to do this, right? Yeah, um there's uh it's kind of two sides of it. One side is, you know, the amount of backlash people get from the assembled in Italy sticker on um, a pair of Vittoria tires that, you know, they're not, they're not made in Italy, but there's various laws in various countries which allow you to do a certain amount of processes within a territory. And therefore it can be either assembled or manufactured within that territory. If you tick enough boxes and people try and hide that, and that gets you a bad reputation for trying to hide something. Um, and as a new brand, you can't afford to hide anything um, because the second it's out, you're kind of you're rumbled. Um, but the other side of it is 
they're really good at their job. They've they've been doing they've been doing their job very well. They've they've invested in. I mean, for me, it's aluminium tubing um, as my primary thing. Moving into stainless, it's the same process. But they've been investing in the the sort of development of the alloys themselves. They've been investing in the de- development of drawing tubing, forming tubing. Um, from there, they've been investing in all the small parts and the whole process. And they've been doing it a lot more and for a lot longer than anywhere else has. And they're, they're better than pretty much anyone, anyone else in the world at what I want to create. Yeah, do, you, do you think most consumers appreciate that? I think if, I mean, our, our brand is pretty much targeted at people who have, who have already decided they want to have a little bit of a think and do something that isn't just another walk in and buy a £1,500 box with a bike in it from Evans or from one of the big stores. And they don't, doesn't really matter whether it says Trek or Specialized or Giant or Mongoose or what the, the brand is irrelevant to some people. Whereas other people decide, no, I want to kind of get involved in this a little bit more. I want to have something a bit more individual. And they've already made one step down the process of I'm going to do some research. I'm going to do some thinking. And those people are far more engaged with the realities of international manufacturer than someone who who never thinks about this process. Yeah, interesting. What about, um, Andrew, with Intense, your, your brand obviously has an extremely sort of strong you know usa heritage it's a very american looking and feeling brand how do you guys approach that with the fact that you know you make carbon frames in asia is is that a particular marketing challenge how do you how do you approach that i thought it would be more than than it is and i think that uh, to neil's point i think that people more and more are are more and more sophisticated in in understanding and and it it doesn't take very long Uh, neil's exactly right um if you can uh, doesn't take very long to to explain to someone that find any uh, process that began that is a manual process and follow where the labor was readily available when the whole process began and that's where you'll find your experts so carbon fiber I lived in in Newport Rhode Island which was where the America's Cup sailing uh, went on for years and there was many many carbon factories sprang up uh, in the early days of Pedro's because Pedro's in Rhode Island. And we would go see these incredible carbon rigs being made for America's cup boats. And, uh, they were, you know, it was a million dollars for a mast and, um, because they were all handmade in the U S and the very, you know, very long process. Uh, it only made sense that manufacturers were able to say, where can I find a, a readily available source of labor, uh, 20, 25 years ago. And, and begin the process of making carbon fiber. And now you fast forward 25 years and Boeing and Airbus, they buy their carbon fiber from China. Um, they're, not, they're not looking for the low cost provider of, uh, for airplanes. They're looking for the most high quality carbon they can find. And it's coming from the place where they've been doing it the longest. So I think that intellectually, I think people understand that. Furthermore, I, I hope that we have customers and who are kind of citizens of the world and, um, I'm I'm not a, I'm not personally kind of a huge kind of uh, you know, America's the greatest uh, place on earth like so many Americans are. I, I I've lived in Europe twice in my life and spent a lot of time traveling and I, I I appreciate so many things around the world that I hope that people don't just say if it's not made in America then you know then we're not interested in buying it and some people still do say that but 
I think that uh, uh, think they're the poorer for it, frankly. I think, that, I think they're also the same people who tweet about it on their Apple phone or their anything yeah. else. Um, yeah. I think the, the the other kind of I'm just trying to think the other the other side of this is if I could manufacture closer to home, I wouldn't not manufacture closer to home if I had the opportunity. But it would only be kind of way you'd, you'd kind of you'd have you'd be balancing up the the benefits of closer sourcing is is the only real benefit to me. The the actual location of where it is is completely irrelevant. And I think as as a company gets bigger, the the location of manufacturing becomes less and less relevant as well. It's it's only an issue for me because if something goes horrendously wrong, I have to jump on a plane and it's you know it's a day before I can get somewhere and it's. Mm. A big cash and its hotels and it's it's all the rest of it. Um, if it was if I was having my frames made in Europe, you know, I could get in a car and be there in a day. But uh, the the bigger a company gets and the bigger the the wider spread of places that you're sending things, the the more staff you have in various places, and it's easier to to get things. There's there's no one reason as to say one country is any better than any other for anything just because of its name or its its place or its where you live. And I, I think there's a lot more people that are that are beginning to understand that. And like you said, it's we, we there's there's far more citizens of the world than there are less open-minded people. And and I guess the market does give people that choice as well, right? If if you live yeah, in the United definitely. States and you you know you you're really passionate about USA-made goods, there are options to 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 buy equivalent bikes that are made in the USA. You're just going to have to pay more for them. Yeah, I, definitely. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember when I was at, I'm trying to think whether it was at Evans when it was to do with Pinnacle or Pashley or FW Evans or whether it was at Madison with Genesis, but trying to, just trying to figure out a complete European bike um, because there was a, there was kind of, there was going to be a USP on it, but it ended up a project that was being done for the sake of the project, not for any benefit at all. There's no, there was, there was no reason to have, European-made Weinman rims over Taiwanese-made Alex rims, or or, or anything else, it, and, and it was utterly pointless. And, the, and in the end, you could never guarantee which Campanello factory was making the exact group set you were going to end up with. So it's I'm kind of not a hundred percent certain how I'm kind of trying to wrap up my thoughts, but lo- the the location story is is a lot less of a deal than I perhaps thought it would be when I first started out and to come back to what you originally said was, did I make a conscious decision to do that? I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, all of my bikes are designed here and sort of by us and that, you know, they are individual. They're not just kind of cookie cutter or chosen out of a chosen out of a catalog and just have a sticker put on them. At the same time, they were, you know, the graphic says designed in the garden of England, manufactured by um, welded by hand in Dajo County. And I'm, equally proud of both sides of that because that's what that's what the bikes are you you kind of allude to 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 another another area i wanted to talk about which is you know this this trend of of sort of outsourcing the the manufacturing element to asia it sort of leaves many bike companies essentially becoming more you know they're much more focused on design and marketing exactly the model that you've just described do do you think that's sustainable in the long term what do you think that's going to do to the you know the manufacturing capabilities in in um, in the UK or the US, for example. I think Maggie did enough for our manufacturing process <laughs> more than I'll ever than I'll ever do. I think 
it would be great to be able to support a UK manufacturing process and be able to kind of give jobs to people to do a real thing. So at the end of the day, they can have a physical thing in their hands that they've created because the sense of satisfaction is incredible from doing that. Anybody who's you know got a frame and built a bike up and looked at, sat there at the end of the day and sat on the chair in the garage or workshop and looked at that, you know, everybody just sits there and looks at it for a long time because the sense of satisfaction of a physical thing is great. And I would love to be able to do that for, you know, young school kids who want to, you know, make something. But we, the, the you know, it's, it's impossible for me to start that process without having the infrastructure there to do that. And there's, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be put in place for that to happen. Um, high end stuff is easier. If I wanted to make 10,000 pound carbon fiber frames, I could do that because I could just go up the road to, you know, one of 25 workshops near Silverstone and get, you know, a handmade frame done, you know, get three, three a week made in various different autoclave establishments in that area. Is it a sustainable model? Um, I think until Westerners start moving to Taiwan and being involved with the companies in Taiwan and working for them to develop their own brands, I think it is one of the only ways that, it's going to work at the moment because there isn't there isn't the culture of cycling in Asia that there is in what is what I'm loosely describing as the Western world. I, I just don't I can't see how what we do in what I what we do here in my workshops and what other companies do who get manufactured in Asia. I, I don't understand how that side of the process can be moved to Asia for them to own more of the process. Right. And, it, and it, it's also both, both of your respective companies reflect the environments that you, that you are located in. Right. Yeah, definitely. One, one would hope, right. I mean, that's part of the, part of the definition of a brand. Yeah. <clears throat> but I, but I, I want to touch upon what Neil said. I'm, and, and I think that there's another thing that, uh, it can be a quick get for anyone that you need to dis- discuss this with or, or questions things, which is very, very, very simply put, the supply chain is in Asia. And once you start moving, you're, you, once you start to pound your fist on the table and say, uh, you know, we are going to be a UK brand, 100% made in the UK, or we're going to be an American brand and we're going to stand for this, et cetera. Uh, you run into a whole bunch of problems that, that don't show up in the business plan. And I, I now, you know, one of my partners here at Intense, uh, who runs our global supply chain, was at Cannondale at the same time that I was at GT. And uh, again, another quick quick story. We always had a joke at GT. We we were we were the second to last big American assembly uh, facility at GT in, in Orange County, California, just outside of LA. We had six assembly lines running. And you would be waiting for, you know, you'd have all the frames there all ready to go. And we have all these people, uh, hundreds of people working the assembly lines. And we'd open up a box that said uh, this, you know, with 1000 brake ferrules in it. And we'd open it up and it would be and it would be filled with uh, bolts. And it says brake ferrules all out around the outside of the, the box. So now because you're missing a one P one cent part, you now have to shut down the assembly line because you can't build bicycles. Yeah, and in Taiwan, you just walk around the corner and get those bolts from the place that makes the bolts two doors down. 
and when and when Crank Brothers had a problem with the spring that goes around the center of the egg beater pedal and all of the other pedals that Crank Brothers make that giant spring, which is the kind of the center of the whole thing, and we had a problem with a vendor, we had five other vendors that had samples within 48 hours FedEx to us in California because our guy on the ground or our, our crew of people in the ground were able to immediately find six other people or five other people in Taichung who all made springs. And they make sense for the moto industry and the car industry and everything else. They had, they wound us the wire and they had a samples. They had four or five different, you know, widths or, or, or uh, diameters of wire and we could test them all. And we were back up and running in about a week and a half. And yet at GT and, and uh, my friend, uh, yeah, my partner now formerly who ran the Cannondale factory, he said there, we had the joke about brake ferrules. Their joke was about disc rotor bolts. And so it was the same one. It was just the same joke with a different part. And uh, it would shut down the assembly line when the disc rotor bolt boxes didn't show up by UPS or someone forgot to ship it or they marked the box wrong. Human error is inevitable, but now you've shut down the ability to ship maybe five or $10 million, which is about what we were doing per month uh, worth of bicycles uh, because um, a box came that was filled with the wrong one cent parts. Um, the, The kind of the whole infrastructure thing, it's, it's, there's, it's not just the bike industry that's there. If you, you think Swiss, <clears throat> think Swiss watches, they're there. The Swiss make, the Swiss have a watch industry, not because they make the best watches, but because all the people who make the parts for the best watches are all based in two towns in Switzerland. And there is no one factory that makes a Rolex from start to finish. There's people that make all the individual parts of all the movements and they make for everybody. And there's a whole, there's a whole infrastructure for this in, sort of for high level manufacturing in uh, one small area of a country. In the same way that the bike industry is set up around Taichung, and there's other ancillary industries off it. Yeah. Um, so without, it's not just that you can decide to design a frame in your country and say we're going to make it here, as as you quite rightly pointed out, because there's the small things that go wrong that. It just goes very wrong very quickly for the most minuscule and farcical of reasons. There's there's, there's, a, there's a million and one reasons that can go wrong with a bicycle because there's a million and one parts within it. Even in a small, even in a small, simple single speed bike, it doesn't take much to stop that being manufactured. Yeah, I, I guess one one area I wanted to get both of your 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 opinions on is the sort of ethical side of working with Asian suppliers. And I guess, you know, carbon manufacturing in particular, we know it's very labor intensive, which is, you know, it lends itself to countries with a, with a lower labor cost. It's also quite a toxic process, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that some of the, you know, some of the popularity with, you know, with Chinese carbon factories is partly due to, you know, the lower environmental standards that they have compared to the EU or the US, for example. So I guess I'm curious with both of you, maybe more Andrew, how do you approach that as a supplier? What sort of evaluation process do you go through to make sure that you're, you're sort of buttoned up from that, um, from that side of things? Yeah. I mean, our, our um, COO, uh, again, former Cannondale a guy who's been doing business over there for about 25 years. And um, I think the biggest thing is you, you work with the leading, you work with the leading factories. And, and those are the ones that are most likely to have been perhaps vetted uh, by the other uh, factories as well, by, the, by your, let's call it your competitors, but we share an awful lot of information with each other. And so 
you know, Intense is not uh, the type of company they can lead a, you know, uh, spend money on an audit. By the way, nor, nor would a factory probably allow us to do that, to be honest. But Specialized can and Trek can. And uh, we share an awful lot of information with the other product managers about the factories. So, hang on, they, they can, but are they? Uh, some of them are for sure. And they'll, and they'll share that information with us. Right. Sure. And I would say the information would be anecdotal and saying, you know, again, being that we're such a small supplier, we're not in, we're not in a position to kind of dictate terms, frankly, with anybody. Mm-hmm. However, you can visit the factories, at least the, the factories that I visited recently in December, I was in Guangdong visiting a couple of our carbon factories, incredibly clean, uh, white floor, uh, everybody with masks. Um, there's a lot of vacuuming that are going on. They, they call them vacuum tables. And when they're working on it, there's a, the, the table has a grate over the top of it, kind of like a barbecue grill. And underneath it, you, if you put your hand over it, it's just a giant vacuum and it's sucking everything back down in there. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not telling you that, and I'm not the right person to tell you whether or not it's, uh, that passes, you know, health codes, et cetera. But it, it's, not a, it, it's not the dirty, nasty factories that I visited 15 years ago, frankly. And they probably still exist, but they don't get business from uh, any of the major manufacturers. And I, I don't want to name names, but I could, there was at least 20 other brands um, that were being made while I was there in this factory. And they were all some of the most famous high-end brands in the world. And you run into, you run into your friends in the factories and we see each other from Italy, from the UK, from Germany, we see each other and we're very, very open and sharing information. And when we think that there's something wrong, there's a profit motive for these guys to keep their factories as clean and, and uh, above the board as possible because any of us would turn in one second and get out of there if we thought that there was any trouble. And, 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 we, and we would tell everyone else that we, all of our other Western friends, get out of there quickly. And that has happened. That's happened actually quite a bit. Yeah. As, even as a small company, I've been warned off some places because generally the places that don't look after either their workers or the environment or keep their factories well maintained mm-hmm. are the places that have QC issues. I would agree. But I mean, I, I did make a, a one decision when I first started, I, I, you know, aluminium frames, it's easy because, you know, there's a lot of places actually within Taiwan, even in, you know, within a 15 minute bicycle ride of, the Evergreen Hotel, where you can actually go and see your frames being manufactured. It's yep. it's a small place. Carbon fiber is a little bit different because there's not as many domestic Taiwanese manufacturers anymore. Uh, you know, it's gone to mainland China. There's a lot in Shenzhen. There's a lot of lot. You know, there's they're they're not in Taiwan in the main anymore. Yep. Um, and I can't afford to do two or three flights every time. Um, so I made a conscious decision to only use factories that I can visit myself and which meant that I could only use Taiwanese people for my fork and I have my own fork molds and I know the factories I can walk, I can walk into the factory and not get hassle without having to go in there with the boss of the factory. And you do have to trust a gut instinct to a certain degree. And when you go in somewhere and everything is how you think it should be, um, and there aren't rolls of carbon fiber left out in the heat. There aren't bits of bits of carbon fiber that have clearly been cut out and left out, waiting to be laid up, you know, for four days or or, or anything else. You 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 get a good feel for how good the process is in a factory when you visit a factory if you turn up unannounced and if you turn up not 
with the boss because the boss warns people and go and eat food with the people who work in the factory and you get a much better idea you know get to know the factory foreman rather than the boss of the factory you get to know various different people and i i go riding with these people as well so i can kind of have a, a bit more of a conversation with them outside of the outside of the business environment you get much more much more of an idea of trust of the people who run the factory when you're sitting there 100k into a ride over the mountains good um listen i guess we, we've got to wrap it up we're almost out of time um i guess one one area that um that i did want to talk about and, and you alluded to this andrew with being in a factory and seeing you know many other major brands coming off the same production line clearly the industry's got a challenge there How, like, do, do many consumers appreciate the fact that these frames are all coming out of the same factory. Do you think it's you know, brands having to work harder and harder to differentiate themselves because the manufacturing is so similar? Yeah. I, well, I think that in, in short, yes. And, and I, I can speak, you know, and, 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 you, and I, you know, of course uh, you come from this world as, as well, Alex, you know, very well that a $8,000, mountain bike or $8,000 road bike is an extremely irrational purchase as is a Rolex watch the aforementioned uh, that Neil mentioned earlier. So, you know, this, this is a, uh, we, we understand, um, we're, we're starting to understand more and more about what it means to actually fall in love with an inanimate object. And that's what, that's what we're looking for here. Uh, I know that's from talking to our friends at Pinarello, our friends at Canyon, uh, who make beautiful bikes. Uh, both of those guys make beautiful bikes. Our friends at Santa Cruz and Yeti, et cetera. We try to, you, you, you basically, you're, you're starting to now psychographically segment uh, the consumer. So some people like red bikes and some people like white bikes, for example, you know, and some people like Yetis and some people like Intenses and some people like Santa Cruz's. And therefore we're all, we all have a fairly uh, strong motivation to differentiate from an industrial design standpoint, from a suspension or technology standpoint, a spec standpoint, and a marketing message standpoint. I don't know that that's different from, from any other you know, consumer product, especially when you move into, let's call it luxury consumer products, uh, women's handbags, women's shoes, uh, men's shoes. These are all great things to look at for, you know, for comparison. And uh, we do exactly the same thing. We're trying to have a unique personality on our bikes, on our product and our brand, and uh, some people hear the siren song and other people hear somebody else's siren song. And that's completely natural. And so the actual process of manufacturing something or the physical location, as Neil said earlier, is far less important than actually that, that butterfly, those butterflies you have in your stomach when you fall in love with a motorcycle, a bicycle, a handbag, or a, a watch. And um, that's the business that we believe we're in. We, I say to everybody every day, I'm, I don't feel like we're in the bike business here at Intense. We're in the luxury toy business. Yeah, very, very well put. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, um, some of my frames are made in the same factory as, as a direct competitor. They, in, in many ways, they're very, very similar products, but the end user sees a different story or likes the small differences that are there, you know, even something as simple as the cable routing of a bike can influence someone's buying decisions. If someone's had a horrendous experience with an internal cable run, they'll never buy another internal cable run again until you can either convince them that yours is completely different or you 
you sell a frame with external cable. And the, the small things do make a difference, but nowhere near as much difference, as you alluded to, of buying into something that they feel they associate with. And that can be Yeti's colour. It can be, you know, oh, I remember seeing Sean Palmer doing this on an M1 or, or whatever it was. You know, he was like, he changed, you know, that first M1 was like what changed mountain biking for me and it became something different. All of these things plant seeds of kind of love for something. You only have to look at anybody who's into Volkswagens. They're not just into, they don't just like the cars. It's it's a thing. And, you know, there's whole industries that set up around this kind of human human instinct to associate with a tribe or an identity you know you, you you can be philosophical about these things and kind of say it's it's no different from you know a thousand years ago people would have been worshiping deities that were to do with greek mythology or or, or any of this it's 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 human nature to want to associate with something that is either part of a group or is different from another group yeah by the way that palmer bike uh with the american flag painting on it uh uh, is uh, sitting in front of me right now. So if this was a, <laughs> taking it out for a lunch ride, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is a video podcast. I'd be able to show it to you. <laughs> Listen, I, I want to thank you both. I guess one of the aims I had for this was was to try and shed some light on a you know an area of the in, in, the industry which is obviously very important and very significant. But maybe you know the end consumers don't quite have the same appreciation as as those of us on the inside of the industry uh, do. So, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the, the sort of comments and anecdotes and experiences that you've both shared has been, um, has been great. And I think it's definitely done that. So I want to thank you both for your time. Thank you for the invitation. It's been yeah. fun. Same here. Thanks for having me.